Very good swimmer. I know. I was like, I'm going to say that, and then Allison's going to be like, you think you're a good swimmer? Let me tell you about swimming, baby. I'm an expert. I love to swim. You don't have any water sign in your chart. That's very interesting. It is if you believe that stuff. You love swimming, but you're not. You don't have any water sign. Fascinating. How do you know? We did your chart. Oh, yeah. By the way, my dad, so CoStar is an app where you can see like your astrological chart or whatever. And my dad is on CoStar now. I'm sorry. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. Can you tread water? Remember they used to make you tread water for so long and then be like, this will help you if you're ever shipwrecked. (laughs) You were like, I would, what, in what instance would I be shipwrecked? Except the one time my family was shipwrecked. What? We got shipwrecked. Oh, yeah. I've heard this story. Yeah. My dad rented a boat that he could not drive. And I was like nine. My sister was five. um, And a storm hit and we got shipwrecked. And then the owners of the boat had to come get us. Were you treading water the whole time waiting for them? No, we were like on the boat and then we were on like a sand dune. Nobody was treading water. You should have treaded water just to prove that you could. (laughs) And be like, I'll just treading water while I'm shipwrecked being like, this has been worth it. Well, we have got a great episode for you guys this week. Uh, We're going to be talking to LeVar fucking Burton, actor and storyteller that you might know from Reading Rainbow, Star Trek, The Next Generation, and the podcast LeVar Burton Reads. What? (laughs) And later, we'll be discussing emotional intelligence, what it means and how to work on yours. Also, uh, do you have a good review of ours that you want to read? Oh, sure, yes, because this is the uh, time of the year where we're begging you guys to give us more reviews so that we'll get renewed. If you leave a really fun review, we might read it on the show. Uh, Mm -hmm. Let's see. Who do we want to read from? Okay, so Deep... I can't pronounce this person's username. Deep Sarah Leaf. Someone said, Great show with great people. I've followed along since the BuzzFeed days. They've helped me understand my mental health and get over my shame of it. All positive things. But for episode 70 on Would You Stay With This Cheater, if she's the president, how did she hide a pregnancy without being caught by the paparazzi? And I would like to say that if you listened closely to that hypothetical, it had been years before she was the president. Because the child, the child was already at least 25 because they were running for Congress. Right. You didn't didn't catch us. I wasn't caught. (laughs) Speaking of hypotheticals, I have one for you from Sarah Sarah Cooliest. It says, time for a quick episode of America's Favorite Game Show. Would you stay with this podcast? Your favorite... (laughs) Your favorite YouTubers, Gabby and Allison, have created a podcast about brutal honesty, female friendship, and unsolicited advice. You'll learn a ton about a range of interesting topics from various guest stars, but the hosts will be extremely vulnerable and personal in new ways every episode. At least one of them will cry on air. Would you stay with this podcast? The answer is a resounding yes. Thank you guys for being one of the best parts of my week. That's very funny, Sarah. That was very good. Try to one-up Sarah in your review. (laughs) Yeah, if you can, please. 
Uh, wow. Um, please, uh, we love this show. We want to keep doing this show. Uh, tell everyone you know about this show. And I'm officially done begging. Perfect. Now, I'll probably beg a little later. <laughs> <laughs> but first, hit it. International question. International question. International question. Anonymous. Oh, that's it? Nothing else? Anonymous from somewhere. Okay, great. I love it. Thank you. So uh, this question is surrounding support groups. And Anonymous says, Dear Allison and Gabby, I went through a traumatic divorce two years ago, and I'm now a single mom. I went to therapy, but I'm very interested in going to a support group for camaraderie. Mm -hmm. The problem is I'm unsure what kind of group to seek out because the situation was so complex. I could easily go to groups for emotional abuse, divorce, single parents, Al-Anon, Narcanon, narcissism, or psychopath survivors, and some kind of legal support group since my ex is now incarcerated. Mm -hmm. There's no such group that ticks all the boxes, and my situation is so wildly unique that I don't even know how to prioritize where to turn. My therapist suggested Al-Anon because that draws the widest crowds, but since he's out of my life, it doesn't feel as relevant. How do you prioritize which help is most helpful? For myself now and for my daughter in the future. I think it's an interesting approach to go into it being like, how do I find the one perfect group that is going to fulfill all of my needs? Because when when you're really thinking about these groups, you know, what they're there for is um, just obviously you have some basis of shared experience, but also just to feel heard, to hear other people's stories, to meet people that you connect with. Like, I don't necessarily think that even if you went to a group that somehow in the name said all of the things that you went through, that anyone's experience would be the exact same as yours. Everyone's personal experience is so unique and so different that I think it's more about finding a group where you like the people, where if it's moderated, you like the leader. Um, and also knowing that like, it doesn't need to be like, I try one group and if that's not the group for me, then I failed. Mm -hmm. It can in the same way of finding the right therapist, like you might need to try out a couple different groups to see like what, what feels the best for you. Mm -hmm. Even with um, Alcoholics Anonymous and with Al-Anon, which I am quite familiar with um, for first time listeners, I grew up in an addict and alcoholic home. Uh, there's different segments of groups. So if you look at the schedule for Alcoholics Anonymous or for Al-Anon, um, it's split up. So sometimes there'll be like a women's meeting and then there'll be like a specifically a men's meeting or there'll be like a meeting where you look, you read through the big book, um, which is the, the book that Al Alcoholics Anonymous works with. Um, and that can be like you're more interested in studying like the, the, you know, the big book or you're more interested in sharing. And then there'll be certain meetings that are, more for sharing. So like even within the scope of these groups, there's, uh, and I'm sure this is the way with many support groups. Um, I know it is for, for Narcanon. There's, um, there's different like levels of comfort and there's different levels of like, uh, types of groups that you can engage with. And also there's different levels of sharing. So like some groups you're, um, they they don't make you share every time or like you don't have to talk every time. Some of them are for sharing. Some of them are just to listen to a speaker. So they'll like bring a speaker in. Um, so it just depends on like the ways in which you best learn and process information and the ways in which like you best feel you would be served. And I've gone to a bunch of different ones. So like I'm not sober, but I, I have attended Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, you go and like there's certain 
ones where uh, I've really enjoyed the speakers that they bring in and I don't feel pressure to talk and that makes me feel better. Um, And then there's certain meetings where they do sort of like newcomer meetings where they do sort of want all the newcomers to get up and at least say something. And those um, scare the shit out of me. And sometimes I lie and pretend I'm not a newcomer so I don't have to talk. Um, Al-Anon, even if the person is not in your life anymore, Al-Anon specifically is, I think, very all-encompassing and and like kind of deals with a lot of the stuff that you specifically are talking about um, because I thought my problems were so special and so unique and I was like, I'm fucked up in this really specific way. Uh, and then I went to Al-Anon and uh, everyone there was the same as me. <laughs> like every single person had very similar issues, regardless of the specific circumstances of of the ways in which alcohol or drugs touch their life. Um, and Al-Anon is specifically for families, family members and friends of, of alcoholics. Um, so we all came from such different backgrounds. We all had very, you know, mine was my father. Some people there, it was their partner or their ex-husband or their ex-wife or something like that. Or like, a, you know, a sibling. But all of us had like very similar experiences and very similar um you know, inabilities to understand when they're being gaslit or uh, like reactionary trauma to loud noise. Like there were certain things that like everyone kind of had in common. Um, And I was totally shocked by that. So I think you're like trying to be really specific about these things, but I think you'll find, and my experience in support groups has been that you find that like kind of wherever you go, there will be, even if your exact situation is not specific, you will find people who the the result is the same mm-hmm. and that that can be really helpful because the results of what you're trying to work on and the problems that it manifests in your life are like super similar and i also think that at different parts in your life different groups might hold more value than others you know so if like if you want to start with al-anon then that's great and maybe like as you're uh your daughter grows up, like maybe then you want to go to like a group that's more about around parents and single parents mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, so I think that you really don't need to feel locked into any of these groups. But I think also if you find one that you like, I think that um, there's really something to getting to if it is a weekly group session versus like I think kind of like Al-Anon and um, AA tends to be Sometimes people go to the same meetings, but sometimes it's a bunch of new people. Like I think some groups like it, it is tends to be the same people every single week. I think that maybe starting off, it'd be great to find um, maybe even in addition to Al-Anon, like a group where you're really getting to know those people in that group, especially if you're not used to being in a group so that you can maybe like the first time you go, you don't necessarily feel comfortable sharing. But because it's the same faces every week, you mm-hmm. get more comfortable and then you can really um, benefit more from uh, listening to them and just conversing with them and the relationships that might even form Mm -hmm. between you and the other group members. Yeah, people do have home meetings and specific meetings that they go to every week. Um, And you will see familiar faces uh, like every week if you go. Um, And you'll get to know people's stories based on when they share. And if someone shares something that sounds similar to what you've gone through, uh, you can go up to them. I mean, it's very friendly. It's very, like, welcoming. It's very... um, they want to help, you know? And so like if someone's story sounds very similar or like something that can help you, uh, you can approach them and ask them to be your sponsor too. Like if, if someone um, specifically has something that you think you could benefit from also in terms of your daughter, I don't know how old she is, but there are, there is Al-Anon for teens. There's also Al-A-Teen. Um, there's like a lot of different groups for 
teenagers specifically to like talk to other teenagers who may have parents who are alcoholics or who may be dealing with even specifically incarcerated parents. I know there are Mm -hmm. support groups for children with parents who are incarcerated. um, And that might be helpful to her to to talk to other teenagers who have a similar experience because I think maybe the general friends that she has might they might judge or they might not understand having a parent um, who's in prison. So I do think it's cool you're looking out for your daughter as well. I want to make some clarity between support groups and group therapy. So like support groups is something like an Al-Anon or an AA where you uh, it's free and you go. And then there's there's group therapy, too, which is like uh, you have a therapist who is like leading the conversation and they are, you know, they are licensed. And um, I think that there's also benefit from from group therapy as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And those group therapy sessions can also be like rather specific in, in the candidates who are there. Mm-hmm. And I think I think also your your daughter might really benefit from mm-hmm. from group therapy um, and being maybe with other teenagers or however old, or when she hits her teens or with other, you know, kids who have maybe had similar backgrounds. Now that things have gone online, too, um, I just want to say as resources for people, um, I know it's very scary walking into meetings for the first time, um, you know, depending on it. a lot of them are held at churches, which um, mm-hmm. can feel a little weird. Uh but also, um, so I know that's it's very scary to walk into the the rooms for the first time. But um, now that stuff has gone online, um, there's meetings on a website called In the Rooms, and a lot of people uh, who go, it, it's less stressful to log into like a Zoom and mm-hmm. have and have this kind of meeting, and um, it feels a lot less like pointed at you and. Um, I think people have been feeling. I, my dad leads meetings on that website, and I think a lot of people have been feeling less stressed out because they're not physically going to a location and like being vulnerable. They feel a little bit easier having a little bit of an easier time attending meetings or um, sharing or just because of the distance of technology, which I think is a fascinating response in the um, addiction community in regards to COVID. And having it be um, an online meeting kind of lets you explore a bunch of different groups and see which one works for you because you're not driving all over the place. You know, mm-hmm. you can even, you know, within 20 minutes be like, well, this is not for me. Maybe it's like too religious or mm-hmm, you just mm-hmm. don't like the vibe. Like you could just easily like X out of the screen mm-hmm. instead of having to awkwardly get up and leave or <laughs> wait until the end. So now might really be a good idea to kind of like dip your toe into a bunch of different groups and see which one is resonating the most for you right now. But I think it's so awesome just in general to to want to do this and to be thinking ahead like this for your daughter and, you know, be willing to kind of, I would assume, maybe step out of your comfort zone to, to have to, to attend a support group. And I think that there's a lot, a lot of benefit from being part of these groups. And we really hope that it, it helps. Sometimes it's a lot of woo-woo stuff, but you could take it or leave it. <laughs> That's what, I, you know, I think for me, <laughs> I would have a difficult time with anyone, anything that had a religious component. So I think Not religious, just like spiritual. Spiritual, higher power, any of that, you know. Yeah. So I think that you, it's also okay for you to kind of like do the research into those groups and see like what is their like what is their mission statement you know like what is their what's driving this group and and make sure it sort of aligns with your values 
Yeah, there's been a lot of reimagining of the term higher power in terms of AA and, and uh, Al-Anon because people are like, I'm atheist and I don't want to deal with this or I'm Jewish or whatever. But um, there's been a lot of reimagining as higher power to not be God. So just mm-hmm. a heads up. It's not like that as much anymore, I promise. <laughs> Hopefully that helped. Uh, if you want to submit your international question, send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Oh my God, you guys, coming up next is our interview with LeVar Burton. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Stick around. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. Our guest this week is LeVar Burton, which, are you kidding me? Uh, (laughs) Hi, thank you for coming. Well, um, thank you for asking me to come. So how do do you describe yourself? Yeah. Me? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Storyteller. Yeah, that makes sense. I describe myself as as a storyteller. And that that is relatively new for me within the last um, year or so that I, I finally feel comfortable Claiming and owning the mantle of storyteller. What does that mean to you to be a storyteller? Um, I, I see storytelling as a, a time-honored and sacred profession. I believe that it is the stories that we tell ourselves and one another that provide the context for who we are, why we're here, and what we're doing while we're here, you know? Um, stories have always served as the underpinning for the human journey. And as an actor, a director, a writer, a producer, a public speaker, podcaster, all of those are extensions of the storyteller soul that I believe I was born with. How has your story that you tell yourself about yourself kind of changed over time? Oh, my God. What a great question. Allison, no one has ever asked me that question before. <laughs> Wow. I'm so I'm so excited. <laughs> Me too. Holy shit. Woman. <laughs> Points for Allison. Oh, my mom is going to be so proud. <laughs> so, I genuinely believe that our stories continue to change and evolve as we grow and develop. The story that I told myself about myself when I was 19 is vastly different and thank God yeah. from the story that I tell myself about who I am today. And it is through a lot of process that I am able to say I am more in love with the story of me now mm-hmm. than I have been at any other time in my life. No, I, I think that that's so true. And I, and I think that there's so much power in other people's stories, but also in how you view yourself as like the lead in your own life. And I think sometimes you can kind of view yourself as the villain or the victim or as like a strong protagonist. And that really influences your behavior and how you interact with other people in the world. Without question. It seems like you were resistant a little bit to the label of storyteller. Was that because you viewed yourself as like an actor or a personality or something other than that? Mostly because for me, um, people that I consider storytellers in my life were like very revered in in my view. When I think storyteller, I I think Alex Haley. Mm -hmm. I think um, Gene Roddenberry. 
I think Fred Rogers, those three men um, are like my storytelling mentors. And so, you know, one is always, I think at least, yeah, I think we are always very reluctant to put ourselves on the same level as our mentors, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Um, however, you know, I, I feel like, and this happened for me first, I, f- I felt like I had graduated to the level of elder, right? Mm. And it was only after I sort of embraced being an elder that I began to become comfortable claiming storyteller status. But storyteller to me, I mean, it doesn't get any, any higher uh, or more honorable than that. Well, I feel for people my age, I mean, I'm 32, and I feel like for people my age, you did sort of occupy a similar space as Mr. Rogers in the sense that, like, I mean, my first question to you is going to be, like, how does it feel that you taught an entire generation to read? Like, I think you sort of occupied that similar, like, older brother, father figure kind of space, but, like, you felt you didn't really deserve it or you felt that you had kind of fallen into it? Well, I can't honestly say that any of this is something that I sought out, you know? Uh, <laughs> um, when I decided to become an actor, I certainly had aspirations for for success at it. I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be a starving artist. I wanted to be successful. Having said that, everything that's happened to me in my career since I was 19 has, I, I, did, <laughs> I did not plan for, I did not see any of this coming. So I am... If nothing, I'm I'm grateful that my life has turned out the way it has because from the family that I came from, there is no better thing than to feel that you're being useful, that you are fulfilling your purpose mm-hmm. in life. And I, I definitely feel that I am. I know that I am. I absolutely know that I am in my purpose in what I do. And that's why we're here. At least that's why I'm here. I think that's why we're all here. We're all here to fulfill a purpose. We all have a plan before we take Mm -hmm. a body. We all come in with an agenda, with lessons that we need to learn, with relationships that we need to heal. Um, And it's our responsibility to figure that shit out, you know, what (laughs) it is that we come to not fight it. Exactly Mm -hmm. right. Exactly right. We have to figure these things out and and then and move forward in the in the confidence with the knowledge that, you know. This is why I'm here. This is what it's all about. But it's also, like I said before, it's very, it's, it's very difficult to see myself the way you guys see me, mm-hmm. right? Because one of the things I learned, and I, I, the three men that I've, I've just mentioned, I've learned an enormous lot from, from all three of them. One of the things that I learned from Gene Roddenberry was that our heroes are all human. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't aware of that. I didn't have that awareness before my relationship with Gene. Mm -hmm. Because I realized when I met him that I absolutely put him on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. I was a Star Trek fan from the word go. Mm -hmm. Um, Gene's vision was one that embraced me. And so I embraced it. My mother and my sisters and I used to watch Star Trek in, you know, in the days of the original series. So meeting him and, and getting to be around him and getting to work with him was such a high experience in my life. And then discovering that in the midst of all of that vision was a guy, right? Mm -hmm. Was a man. And then it made sense to me that, you know, in this 
this lofty vision of the future, all the women wore short skirts in the original series, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, no, I mean, re- really. It's, yeah. And so it really gave me an opportunity to examine that dynamic of hero worship and what it really means and the impossible position it puts on the adored. Mm-hmm. The only thing you can do when you're on a pedestal is fall off. Right. Well, that's why people always say that Superman is the least interesting hero, right? Because he only has like one thing that can hurt him versus being complex and right. having that's a lot right. of flaws. Yeah. I mean, how do you deal with that? Because I think you've, you, there's like, I'm sure in a you that actually exists and then a you that's like emblematic of something, you know? How do you like deal with that? Staying in integrity, which to me means um, being true to myself, um, being true to um, my ideals, my values, um, is everything to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I really have come to believe that as long as I adhere to that personal code, I'm going to be all right. And mm-hmm. everything else will take care of itself. But I have to do the work. Yeah. I'd love to get your opinion on the debate around what stories writers are allowed to tell. And if, you know, mm. if like you're not from a certain uh, background group or, or group, background yeah. or minority, if, if you have the right to tell those people's stories, what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? I think that the human experience is one where, where we have the ability to empathize with those who have seemingly very little in common. I think that the, the experience of being human is one where we are meant to discover our alikeness. Mm-hmm. Um, in the midst of so many obvious differences, right? And so, as an artist, I do believe that it is possible for an Asian woman to tell the story of a Black man if she has the ability to empathize and put herself in that space. Having said that, if we're talking about telling that story on television... Mm-hmm. or in film or anywhere in the popular culture other than in written form, that Asian woman has to combat years of prejudice and inequality in terms of Black people being able to tell their own stories. Mm-hmm. And I think that in this current climate, we are finally beginning to understand what it has meant to be a Black person in America, and and how unjust that existence has been for 400 years. And the reason why Black people would be upset to see them not get an opportunity to tell their own stories. It's not that white people can't tell those stories or that no one can tell those stories, but Give us a chance. Before you give everybody else a chance to tell our story, damn it, give us a chance. Yeah. We have something to bring to the freaking table in terms of telling stories that center on us. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I think that's a great way to put it. It's, it's you could tell the story, but should you? Sort of. Just because you can doesn't always mean you should. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about being on Star Trek, which I think gave a lot of representation in the original series um, through Nichelle Nichols. And then, you know, you came on sort of like carrying that legacy a bit. Um, and then also through reading Rainbow, like being broadcast into uh, like 
I'm, I'm assuming a ton of white homes. Like, how did you, how did you feel about care, like carrying that or like how, you know, especially into Star Trek, do you feel like you were being like a representation or like mm-hmm. that you had some sort of extra burden, you know? I've never considered it a burden. My first professional job was playing Kunta Kinte in Roots. So I know that that's a part of my personal path. It's a part mm-hmm. of my destiny path to tell stories that bring that kind of humanity to a whole race of people who have been othered historically on this planet, right? And so having the ability to accept that about myself gives me the freedom to not feel any pressure. If this is indeed what I was born to do, then any resistance I put up to it is only going to make my job more difficult and that discord will show up in the work and that's the last thing I want. But it does really require a rigorous process whereby I figure out who the hell I am, right? And so I've, I've devoted years um, to exactly that. I mean, it's a process that never ends. But um, in my younger years, I recognized just how important it was for me to really get right Mm-hmm. with myself. Yeah, it's inherently political in some ways. And I know that you've been like political on social media and like I I watched the um the this is my story YouTube series mm. that I thought mm-hmm. was incredible. Um what like do you think it's important for people in the public eye to be I mean especially right now but you know since 2016 or always the to be like outwardly open about political stuff or to be aligned with like the only the- if you choose to be I don't mm-hmm. I don't feel that there is a necessarily a particular burden mm-hmm. on well-known people if you understand celebrity if you understand fame at all then you recognize the importance of the behavior that you model for people um but I don't think that it should be a, a blanket across the board must mm-hmm. um, only if you really feel it should you engage in it. I I was raised in a, in a consciousness of politics are part of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was about and, to ask why do you do it. Yeah, my mother was very very politically active. I was raised in Sacramento, California, ca- the state capital um, here in this in this state. Um, I've just always been politically active. I've always been. I was you know I was politically ra- radicalized by my mom at a very early age. What did she do? What was her her deal? She was an English teacher. Um, that was her first profession. Um, and then she became a social worker um, as her second profession. So, um, And she worked primarily with a population of um, single-parent households. They used to call it AFDC AIDS, Aid to Families with Dependent Children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I, I, I knew that the population that my mother served... Um, were were not looked well upon by white normative society. Um, And still, my mother was very clear in expressing to me that they deserved uh, help as well, that they they were not untouchable because of their social or economic status. They were human beings. This is kind of a complicated question, but with the rise of social media and the fact that so many people now have an audience that they maybe would not necessarily have, 
Do you think that it's exposing people in a good way to so many different types of lives and stories? Or is media and storytelling losing some of its power and that it's become so diluted? I think that the first is probably more true than not. There's always a double-edged sword, especially where media is concerned, Mm -hmm. right? However, what's great about the age in which we live is that the tools for storytelling have been democratized. Mm -hmm. It's the democratization of content creation. No one can prevent you from having access to, to, from first telling your story and then having access Mm -hmm. to an audience. For years and years and years, unless you were connected to the publishing industry or the television industry or the film industry, which have all been controlled by a handful of white men, then you didn't have an opportunity to share your story necessarily. The Mm -hmm. barrier to entry was just really, really, really high. So now we live in a magical age of storytelling because everyone can share their story and and everyone has multiple outlets for the sharing of the stories they want to tell. It's like, are you kidding me? And so, and I believe it's through storytelling that we break down those barriers. Mm -hmm. I believe that if I can sit with you long enough, Mm -hmm. if we can swap the story of who we are, we will find commonality. Definitely. There still may be some important subjects upon which we very much continue to differ, but we will find that commonality. And that happens through the sharing of story. I totally agree. And I think overall, it is such a positive, but I'm seeing, especially on TikTok and like an Instagram story, where people are almost telling their stories as they're happening versus Mm. having the reflection to tell their story. And I wonder if, if that sort of not allowing people to fully comprehend what's happening to them because they feel the need to share it as it's happening instead of like having any hindsight. It's part of the evolution of the medium though, isn't it? Yeah, Mm -hmm. right. definitely. Um, When filmed entertainment was invented and developed, no one who was in those early days of movies and filmmaking could have predicted the multi-billion dollar industry that porn would become, right? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Things evolve. They do. And then, you know, and then porn discovered that, well, it, it wasn't about film. It's about video, having immediate access to people. You don't have to go to the theater. You just pop in a VHS cassette and there you are. So there's, there's always uh, an evolution mm-hmm. of things that are, are happening. And, you know, TikTok and that immediate sort of telling the story in the moment without giving any real thought to what it is you're broadcasting, it's, it's a part of it. And as we become more familiar with the kinds of stories that we want to tell and share and the reasons we want to tell and share those stories, there will be, a, I think, a, a winnowing and a, and a sort of self-selection process that will happen. I guess I just worry that people are now viewing themselves as uh, protagonists versus people, you know? So, like, mm. they feel the need <laughs> to have everything be cinematic and be a story and like they're cognizant that people are watching their lives unfold versus like letting their life unfold. Mm. And I wonder what that, if that impacts people potentially in a negative way. Well, unless you genuinely know who you are, then you are more prone and susceptible 
to presenting a false image of who you are. Mm -hmm. Just goes along with the territory. That's part of the the danger of broadcasting who you are. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking it goes back to what you were saying about changing your, your story of yourself or evolving. And I would hope that like as people, we can allow for that with other people where we, maybe they told an initial story about themselves, but if we allow ourselves to feel we're complex, then we can assume that, you know, a month from now, this person might feel differently about what they they shared or I have a problem on this podcast where I feel differently five minutes after I said one thing <laughs> that I'm like, oh, God, I don't even believe that anymore. Like it's uh, I think like we have to allow for people to change their minds or grow. Agreed. Absolutely. You know, recently there have been some YouTube stars that have shut down their operations because of things that they've said or filmed about themselves in the past that in the light of today mm-hmm. um they're very embarrassed by and they feel called out mm-hmm. on it. And I absolutely agree with you, Gabby. Those those people, after some time of self-reflection, should they choose to re-enter the act of or the art of storytelling or the commerce, the mm-hmm. business of storytelling, however they want to engage with it, they will hopefully do so from a different place inside of themselves. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's... That's the only thing that really matters. That's all that really matters. They need to really reflect and really like, you have to actually though, take the time to like actually reflect, actually change. Like, you know, that's the thing that I think people are so quick, like they're going so fast that they're like, so after three weeks, I'm basically different now. And it's like, no, you have to like really, you have to like really take a moment to get out of the the high, the adrenaline of just posting, posting, posting. I think that's part and parcel of the the age in which we live, that, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, everything is moving at such a pace, you know, the 24-hour news cycle, and you have to, you know, you have to keep feeding the beast. You have to keep creating content, right? And so the time necessary for that kind of reflection, like I said earlier, that rigorous self-introspection, um, that, that sort of gets lost in the shuffle. But if you are incapable of learning from your mistakes, then you will only continue to repeat them again and again and again. Right. And if not in this lifetime, you will, if you don't handle your shit now, you're only going to have to come back and repeat it again and again and again. So I'd rather handle my business while I'm enjoying a lifetime where I feel like I have the luxury of being as <laughs> conscious as I, as I want to be. To- yes, absolutely. Back to just like the art of storytelling and as someone who has read so much and been a part of so many different stories, there is this kind of belief, I think, kind of perpetuated by like one of the fundamental screenwriting books, Save the Cat, that there's really only like eight stories that exist, you know, where it's like buddy comedies, which like includes, you know, rom-coms, fish out of water, water, Mm -hmm. you know, a whodunit. Like, do you think that there's really... There's just a couple basic stories that then just get rewritten with different details. Yeah, I, I, I believe that there's probably some truth to that. Because there are, are definitely basic archetypes of characters that populate our stories. And, and so, yeah, I, I imagine that there, there does exist a pattern into which you could ostensibly fit all storytelling into or all stories into. Um, and within those broad categories, there's a lot of room to play. There's a lot of gray area. So I don't think there's anything hard and fast about it. Um, but I, I think it, it does help us understand the art of storytelling mm-hmm. when you can break it down like that. And why you know, certain and it, things it, are satisfying. 
Exactly, exactly. And it ceases to become so mysterious, you know? Right. When I first started directing on Star Trek The Next Generation, I, I had been in the business for a long time and I had been really mystified by the art of directing. I just thought it was just so complicated and so complex, and it is. However, you know, I was only doing TV movies. I'd never done a television series before. So being on the set every day and observing the process really helped demystify that job for me. And I was able to really sort of break it down. And then when I realized, and then when I was given the opportunity to do it, and I just thrived through the experience, I realized God, I was born to do this. And I just had to go through the process of learning, right? Mm -hmm. Learning the craft and reaching a point where it was no longer a mystery to me that I saw that there was a process to it, that there were steps that were involved in doing the job well. What's your favorite stories to read on your show or to, to tell? Like, what's the ones that you gravitate towards the most? When I am reading for pleasure, I, I, I lean heavily into speculative fiction and, and fantasy. That's my go-to. Why? Genre. Um, speculative fiction invites us to contemplate what I believe to be our two of the most powerful words in combination in language. Those two words being what if. Mm -hmm. And in contemplating the what if, we really discover the nature of manifestation in this universe, right? I... Absolutely. I genuinely believe that there was some kid who watched the original episodes of Star Trek, right? And was constantly exposed to those images of Captain Kirk pulling out his communicator and calling Scotty on the ship, Scotty, beam me up, right? And that kid grew up, became a scientist, a, a designer uh, of product and created this flip cell phone, mm -hmm. right? It is that which we imagine that we tend to manifest in this realm. Everything begins with a thought. Everything begins in the imagination. Nothing that's ever been created did not originate in the mind of a human being. And the relationship between human beings and divine, divinity, inspiration. Inspiration, it's from the Latin inspire, to breathe in, right? To really allow the all that is to be present in you. And when you can get out of the way, right, and commune with that universal intention, then, whew, boy, there's nothing like it. And so many things from those books have, like, then come true, or TV shows have then come true. <laughs> Absolutely. All of the things that we enjoy today that were inspired from Star Trek, mm -hmm. Uhuru's communicator is the Bluetooth device. We used iPads on the Enterprise before they were invented. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it leads to the disappointment of like, why can't we beam somewhere? Come on. Not yet. We'll get there. We will get there. Yeah. We, I believe, I firmly believe that we have the ability to get there. Look, they're working on a way of maximizing the computing power in the chip. They call it geosynchronous systems architecture. And that is going to get us to a holodeck in our lifetimes. Oh, my God. In our lifetimes, oh right? God. So, <laughs> and things are moving so fast. Mm -hmm. um, I would be very surprised if we don't have some kind of transportation device in near history, say my great-grandchildren's 
lifetimes. If there's still an earth. <laughs> if there's still an earth. And you know what? You bring up a really good point. Well, they'll be so. beaming onto a ship. Yeah. And then it'll be just like, and then we don't even need it. It'll be fine. Yeah, but you know, to have destroyed this jewel will have been the biggest sin in the history of humanity. Totally. Before we move on to the game show portion, I just wanted to ask if if there are some young, frustrated writers out there who think that every good story worth telling has already been told, what would you say to them? Has your story been told? I think aspects of my story, yeah. No specifics, it's the specifics. it, It is the specifics. If your story hasn't been told, then every story hasn't been told. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, you know, they say when you're writing your first novel, write what you know. Well, well, what do you know better than who you are? If you begin there, then you will find the right trappings, right? Mm-hmm. The right details for the story that you feel is offers something to the genre, that has something, that, that story that has value to other people, let's say. And that's all that's really required is authenticity and imagination. Yeah. That was a wonderful answer. I know. (laughs) I think that's going to help a lot of people. Yeah, I think our audience will love that. And commitment. You never, hard work, you know, Mm -hmm. perspiration. Um, You got to stick to it. You have to have commitment. Yeah, that's a tough part, right? (laughs) Well, it can be. Yeah, there's discipline involved, especially in writing, you know. I hate the discipline that writing exacts uh, from me because, you know, I like to live in the artist space and, woo, 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 <laughs> you know, I get to create, but, you know, writing takes discipline. <laughs> yeah, it's a job. It's a job. You have to look at it as such. Yeah. yeah. My yeah. my mentor in college said that if someone ever says that they, that writing is so easy and so fun, they're probably not a good writer. <laughs> Right. But I have to do like I I when people are like, I don't know how you do that. I'm like, I've never done anything else. I have no other skills. Like, I promise you, like, that's that's the only way it comes out. I don't know. Would you say, Gabby, that it was what you were born to do? I think so, because I was doing it at four, six, eight. Like, I think like before I consciously was like, this is what you're you'd- 33. 32. You really think 32. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to push the that's river. That's okay. But do you really think you were born to write or do you know you were born to do this? No, I know because it's the only thing that happens innately. Yeah, that's it. Right, right. I think I was put here to play game shows. And would you (laughs) like to play a game show? Love (laughs) Oh, my God. Here we go. Love game shows. (laughs) So we're about to play hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask as many questions as you want, and then you'll tell me what you would do in that situation. Yeah, exactly. And we're either, sometimes we're working together and sometimes we're adversaries. It really depends on the question. Oh, so. cool. <laughs> All right. So you can give different answers. You don't have to agree with each other. Right, right, right. Okay. Right. You've played, obviously played this game before, Gabby. I've played it hundreds of times, not just on this show, but in personal conversations with Allison as well, so... <laughs> Oh, wow. All right. <laughs> okay, so our first game is, are you a terrible parent? All your child wants to do is play violent video games. So you tell them that for every book they read and discuss with you, you will buy them a new super violent video game. Are you a terrible parent? 
don't worry, you're also very rich, so the money part doesn't matter. <sighs> oh my god. How much is the violence affecting them? It's hard to say because you won't know until they get older. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and answer. Yeah. I, I don't believe you're a bad parent because clearly you are trying to mitigate the potential, the potentiality for that violence having a negative impact on your child. Personally, I do believe that it, it does and it will. So giving them a choice to trade off something that you feel is really healthy for them and something that they really want to do that may not be so healthy, I think is a reasonable approach. I, I have a, a daughter who makes her living in the gaming space. And, and it was how we connected with one another when she was little. And she's gone on and made it her career, her life's work. And even though her, her passion isn't violent video games, I certainly had to look as a parent at the amount of time my kid was spending <laughs> playing games, mm -hmm. playing these video games. And, you know, it, it did give me pause, but I see her, I saw then, I see now her absolute passion for it. And I see that it has led her to discover a part of herself that is absolutely intrinsic to who she is. What yes, kind of books, oh, so I was going to say, what kind of books are you, are you are they all nonviolent books? Uh, they're all they're all nonviolent. A lot of the great classics. Okay. Um, and I have to just reveal to you that you're actually an incredible parent because they then grow up to create uh, nonviolent video games, and it's your own daughter. <laughs> oh come on! Wait a minute. I feel like you changed the answer of of the winning answer based on Lavar's actual life. Of course I did. I always do. She's the game master. That's her prerogative. <laughs> Thank the you. problem is, is that I never win. Okay. <laughs> You've won sometimes. I've Yeah, I've won like twice. Okay, All so right. this, this next one might be controversial. Here we go. Would you lie or tell the truth? For some reason, you're watching Star Wars for the first time with your kid. And he guesses out of nowhere that Darth Vader is Luke's father. When he asks if he's right, would you lie or tell the truth? You have to answer yes or no. I would lie. And I'm doing this right now with a friend of mine who's watching through Drag Race for the first time. And whenever they ask me th something and they're right, I am telling her no because I want her to be shocked and surprised and to enjoy it with the same level of, of newness as, as she can possibly view it as, you know? I have a question. Yes. Um, are you certain that this conclusion was actually intuited by the child or did they read about it online? No, you live on a private island and you choose everything okay. they're exposed to. So yeah, because then know. they're testing if you're a liar, which is interesting. It, 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 that being the case, I, I would tell the truth and, and acknowledge my child's innate intuition intuitive understanding of storytelling and the power of myth um, and recognize that, wait, this kid has an unusual ability. My, my kid's an amazing dramaturge, much better than I am. She can break down an, a movie or an episode of TV and she can tell you a mystery in the first act who, who did it. Um, and she's unfailing in that ability. So I believe in supporting 
talent and nurturing it wherever you recognize it. That was the correct answer. So it's two to zero. The audience can't see my face, but I have accepted defeat. Oh, <laughs> I am uh, beleaguered, uh, oh. and I have just accepted my fate. I would just be so impressed with my kid, because yeah. America did not even see that coming. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I thought you were going to say your kid is watching Star Wars, and he's convinced that you're in it because he misunderstood Star Wars and Star Trek. <laughs> Do you lie or tell the truth? You just point to a stormtrooper and go, yeah, that's me. That's what I thought you were going to say, and I well, was real prepared. Well, your answer is always elaborate lies. My answer is 100% lie. Always. <laughs> okay. Full disclosure, my, my kid is a huge Star Wars fan, and Star Trek not so much. <gasps> so... Wow. Until the until the the new incarnation, until the the Chris Pine and Carl Urban uh, wow. Well, that um, explains. You're like, I'm no Chris Pine. Well, I get it. Kids yeah. have to be rebellious, you know? Like, my parents love the Yankees, so I was like, I love the Red Sox. Right? So, yeah, yeah, my dad's in Star Trek, so I love, I love Star, Star Wars. Wars. Relatable. I'm very relatable to everybody. Her friends actually had to sit her down and do an intervention and, and make her watch an episode of Star oh my Trek. God. That's amazing. <laughs> okay, our final game. Is this person an alien or just rude? While browsing a local bookstore, you notice that the last 10 pages of each book has been ripped out. When you ask the owner about it, they say the reader should create the ending for themselves in order to reach their highest capabilities. Is this person an alien or just rude? They still charge full price for the books. They're evil. <laughs> I think that person is evil. More than rude, that person is evil. Oh. My God. Do they tell you before you buy the book that the 10 pages are ripped out or do you just no. have to go home and that's fucked up? Wow. <laughs> that is right? evil. That is, yeah, is messed up. Evil personified. That yeah, person that should is. be, that person is, is uh, like a menace to society. Gabby, you and I are in complete and total agreement. Yeah, that person is, we should pick it outside their bookshop. Persona non grata. You, Get- you, that person needs to be cast adrift uh, uh, yes. In the middle of the ocean with, by the way, nothing to read. <laughs> That's my nightmare. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I hate to break it. You're both wrong. They are an alien. And on their planet, the way to really work your brain is you never are given the end to a story and you have to come up with it yourself. I hate that. Well, don't go and to their so, planet. And so stories are written with that in mind then. Yeah, so it doesn't really work on Earth, but... I was going to say, it doesn't work on Earth. They were trying to help. No, (laughs) no, it's a hard pass for me. Absolutely. Look at the disservice you're doing to the the writer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's why I I hate ambiguous endings. I think that's lazy writing, and it gets me furious. Well, I I like it because then... No, I like it because then at the end of the movie, you Google, and you're like, what does everyone think? I like it. I like to think that the writer is in control of it the whole time. I've recently been able to watch the Hamilton movie, and I saw I saw the play twice, once with the original cast in New York and, and then here in Los Angeles. Having enjoyed that play as many times as, as I have, both visually and auditorily, seeing and hearing Lin-Manuel break down some of the process that he employed in the crafting of this thing. I mean, just the one story about that last gasp, mm-hmm. right? that Eliza gives at the end, uh, just knowing the meme that it's her 
seeing the audience and realizing that her story is being told, that slays me. Yeah. Because of the complexity, because of the thought that Lynn put into that. So without that opportunity to have that genius be shared and then discerned, wow, the experience would not have as much meaning for an audience. So you wanted him to say what it meant versus people online guessing. I I was able to appreciate it without knowing, Mm -hmm. but I was able to really marvel Mm -hmm. at the the specific genius Mm -hmm. of him and the effort when I knew the story behind the story. Wow. Well, Allison is right again. so much for joining us. Can you just talk a little bit about your podcast? I know it's coming back for a new season. LeVar Burton Reads, a seventh season. Yeah, I read one short story in every episode. And I say at the beginning of the podcast, the only thing these stories have in common is that I love them. <laughs> and I hope you will too. Thank oh you so God. much for joining us. This yeah. was amazing. Thank you for being Allison, on the show. Allison, Gabby, you are delightful human <laughs> beings. Your parents must be enormously proud of you. I know <laughs> I am. <laughs> no! Okay, we're going to go cry. Thank I you can't. so much. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about emotional intelligence. As we cry. Yeah, I'm crying. To just between us, it's time for topics. X, 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 I did your part. I'm so sorry. No, 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 you're allowed. I didn't mean to. You can do it. Oh, thank you. Why not? <laughs> sure. Change it up. We got to keep it fresh over here. Okay, so let's alternate X's. Well, uh, X. 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 So this week, I wanted to uh, discuss emotional intelligence. Why? Uh, well, because Jake and I were having a fight, and... I reacted poorly in the fight. And then he said something about how I have high emotional intelligence. So he was surprised that I was reacting that way. And I felt called out. <laughs> what was the, well, what, why did, why did you react poorly? Why did you do that? Uh, because I felt defensive and instead of like, um, and so I like kind of gave an immature reaction of like, well, then I just won't talk about this thing anymore, mm. which is a immature response. And then it just got me thinking about emotional intelligence in general and how much it really impacts our lives and how it helps to like both know the term and also like be aware of like how you can work on yours. Yeah. So how would you describe emotional intelligence from the point of view of future therapist Alison Raskin? Well, from the point of view of the Internet, (laughs) it is described as... Uh, there's two different ways. So one is four pillars, which is self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, and relationship management. Okay. And then there's also a Daniel Goldman, who is a psychologist, and he describes it as self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, empathy, social skills. I, I found the most the most clear description to basically be the ability to identify and manage one's own emotions as well as the emotions of others. Okay, so self-regulation struck me because that is huge, huge. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about this. So um, I have bipolar disorder 
and I am medicated. And if I if I'm not medicated, I will fly. I kind of have historically flown off the handle. And mm-hmm. I was thinking about like um, an argument that I, I had had with Mal. And I am able to stay very present and very emotionally regulated now in a way that I, I had could not in the past. Like I would fight with partners in the past and I would just be like, all right, it's time to just throw gasoline on this fire and like kamikaze the entire plane and like fuck you. And then mm-hmm. and then now I like am very much aware that that is what I want to do, but mm-hmm. I don't do it. And I very much keep like an even um, like non-defensive tone. Like I'm noticing in myself where I'm very much like, well, what, well, what is the evidence that this is the way that that things are? Or like, have I ever said this? Or like, I keep it very grounded in a way that like in the past, I would not have done. So I was super, I mean, I think that's a combination of like getting older and having more experience and also medication. But I felt like I was able to regulate my own emotions in a way that like, I could never do in the past. Yeah, that's what's so cool about this is that it's something that you can work on. So for me, also, like, regulating my emotions has been a a huge uh, positive Mm -hmm. in my life. And I also, you know, not to to the degree, um, I think, that that you were suffering with, but also I would overreact to things. I was afraid of my own reactions to things. I never knew what was going to, like, really set me off and what would be fine. Now I still feel all of the bad emotions, you know, I still feel and I and I even hesitate to call them bad emotions. I would just call them emotions mm-hmm. that are maybe make you feel negatively. Um, but like all emotions are valid. You know, I I'd feel angry or frustrated, but I um also don't then let it consume me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, so you can like I, I recognize it. yeah, I recognize that I'm feeling those emotions. But I don't then have to, like, lash out. I don't have to, like, fall apart or cry. I can kind of, like, uh, I can be like, oh, hello, frustration. Hello, anger. But it's not like, oh, I'm frustrated. Yeah. Oh, I'm angry. Or um, or also the uh, the ability to be like, this is not this other person's fault. Or, mm-hmm. like, this has this has nothing to do with me. Or, like... I'm I'm upset, but I don't have to take it out on or I don't have to expect the other person to um, solve this. Like if I need and, to like go into the other room and lay down for a second, like and that'll fix it, then that's on me to do. Or like if I need to like play a game on my phone for a second or whatever, like finding the ways in which you can regulate your own emotions and you're not relying on other people to um, like fit, quote unquote, fix it. And another big part of emotional intelligence is understanding why other people feel the way that they do. Yes, and giving them this, affording them the same complexity that you afford yourself. Absolutely. So, you know, okay, why is this person upset? Why are they acting defensive? You know, how can I kind of navigate this situation without making it worse for them Mm -hmm. or for me? Mm -hmm. Um, Those are like really important skill sets. And I was reading about it and it says that like some job interviews and applications sort of kind of try to test your emotional intelligence because that can, you know, indicate whether or not you're going to be a good leader. Really? Or a good boss. Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily 
proven that emotional intelligence equates those things. But if I was looking, you know, to like put together a ragtag team of colleagues who I have to work with every day, Mm -hmm. that's a quality that I would want in someone that I would have to work with is emotional intelligence. Absolutely. And also what I would want in my partners and my friends. Like it's a huge benefit if you're interacting with someone who also has emotional intelligence. It's hard. I I would say that it is does not come naturally to me and it's a struggle. Yeah. It's a struggle for me and oftentimes I I'm oftentimes confused about why other people uh need certain things or are upset or like need mm-hmm. uh need stuff and it's very interesting that I've chosen a partner who is very aware of that kind of stuff and very emotional and very um needs hugs and needs like affection and needs reassurance and needs all this stuff that like I think is not natural for me to give or is not um like I'm not not that I'm not considerate but I think like unless you're direct with me it's very hard for me to like like I, I can't read signals sometimes like unless you're super direct with what you want from me or what emotional things you want from me I like can't I can't get I can't figure it out on my own, which is frustrating a lot of the times because I feel like sometimes people are mad at me and I don't really know why. Well, I think that's what's kind of illuminating about all of this is that it's it, it's a, a learned skill set for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some people come out of the womb and are maybe more emotionally intelligent. Mm-hmm. But if that's something that you are lacking in, I think that it's really great to like kind of put in the work and figure out like little tricks and right. like shortcuts and uh, cues to remember things. And, you know, with like social skills training, especially like a lot of times, like I'll want to talk a lot and I have to be like, it's not appropriate for me to talk a lot. Yeah. Or I have to like be aware of like, OK, am I asking enough questions or like, you know, like it's not like, oh, this innate ability, but it's also, it's kind of like you're a, a learned set of skills. Yeah. And so that set of skills can always expand and always get better. And then the more that it becomes natural to you, then maybe it'll feel more like a natural reflex. But mm-hmm. if it's something you struggle with, like you really can work on it. Even just stupid things where, you know, like we're on a Zoom meeting and I'll be like, oh, I should smile because this person is sharing information that they clearly think is important. Whether or not I give a shit about this information, yeah. I just know that like they would appreciate me to smile and not. So I smile and not. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I think also... um, I've you can be if if it's hard for you, you can be honest with people like I'm very honest with friends where I'll just get out ahead of it and be like, you're going to need to be very direct with me. Um, Like you're going to I tend to get along better with people who just start talking. Um, Mm -hmm. But Mal is someone that needs to be asked, how are you? Uh, And a lot of times in my head, I'm like, if you got something to say, just say it. Why do I have to like prompt you to say a thing you want to say? But uh, that's how they feel because they want to they want to know that I care. So I think like sometimes you can just be honest and say like, hey, if I if I'm not asking questions, tell me or if I'm not um, like with friends and with my partner now, I'll like say um, you can correct me or if I'm if I'm assuming something or if I'm like taking, you know, you for granted, or if I am, if you're upset with like an assumption I made or something, like, let me know. Cause I am open to feedback. <laughs> I also think, you know, some people aren't going to share as naturally and openly if they are feeling off about something. 
So I think a component of emotional intelligence is is being able to notice something is off with someone yeah. and then having the insight to be like, hey, is everything okay? I have such a hard time because I feel like sometimes you can only go by what people are telling you. So like if you're like, I really feel like something isn't right and they're like, I'm fine. It's like, how many times are you supposed to be like, look, I need you to tell me what's wrong. Then it's not your responsibility anymore. Yeah. Then it's them not acting correctly. They're not. Do you know what up. I mean? Yeah. Then it's them not allowing you to have a, you know, a productive conversation about it. Um, but I think I think that you can at least be you can at least try. Yeah. And then hopefully they're receptive to it. But if not, there you go. But also emotional emotional intelligence might mean knowing that that person is going to require you to ask a few times. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like some people have those boundaries up. And so if you want to get to the bottom of something, you might have to dig a little bit more than you would want to. What we've talked about this before in our uh, privately as friends, but like, what do you like if someone says I'm fine, I'm fine. Or if they're, if they, you say, did this hurt your feelings? And they keep saying no, but you know, it did like, are you, are you, do you stop doing the behavior even though they keep being like, it's not hurt? Like, how, like how much is like what you're intuiting versus like what they're telling you? That's such a problem for me. Huh. Well, I think there's like different scenarios. There's one scenario where you can tell something is off, but you don't know why. And if they won't tell you, then that's just on them and you have to go live about your life. Um, a lot of times if I can tell something is off with Jake, I'll, I'll ask the clarifying question like, you know, because also you're allowed to be off. That's the thing. Yep. You don't always have to be happy. You don't always have to feel great. Uh, sometimes there's not even a reason for that. It could be like hormones or yeah, sleep yeah, deprivation yeah. or hunger, you know. So like I don't ever want to say that like whoever you're with should always be up. Yeah. But I do think if you're not feeling up, it can be really helpful to give whoever you're with some clarity on why. So you can mm-hmm. even say, I don't know why I'm just feeling off. But like what is annoying to me is if I, I can kind of suspect that I'm part of the reason why they're feeling off and they won't tell me mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. So something I'll ask is like, OK, like, is it anything to do with me? Yeah. And if they say no, then I'll believe them and then I'll go about my life and let them settle through their emotions. Let them regulate their own emotions because that's not my job. My job is not to regulate their emotions. Ugh, sometimes in relationships, like I've been this person and other times that's been towards me where they're like, it how well if you're having a negative emotion that has nothing to do with me how can I fix it and I'm like but it has nothing to no. do with you you can't right you have to just let you have to let people feel their feelings um but I think it is an unhealthy pattern if the person is denying that they're upset with you when they are upset with you right and that is worth a conversation and that's worth saying hey I can't work on things I can't fix things if you're not being honest with me mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and then if they still are having those issues, then that's a bigger conversation and something that they're obviously needing to work through. Mm-hmm. I think just learning that it's not my job to emotionally regulate other people has been incredibly liberating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's like if it doesn't have to do with you, then like doesn't it doesn't have to, have do, to do with you. And you can't assume that everything has to do with you. So. No. People are complex. Very few things actually have to do with I me. know. Me too. People are <laughs> There's complex. a whole wide world out there. <laughs> Tamika, do you want to come on in and share your thoughts? Yeah, it's been an interesting journey to hear both of your perceptions of how you sort of perceive other people's emotions because you guys have talked about this in different ways on different episodes where Allison, I think, learned at a very young age because I think he went to like classes and things to like learn about how to like interact, like interact with people in social situations. Like you had to like study that, right? 
I had to go to a social skills class when I was 12 for a brief amount of time because I was so, my social skills were so poor. I was a very off-putting kid. <laughs> yeah. So you, you had awareness though. Yeah. I, I knew I had to change things and how I was interacting with people. Yeah. Yeah. I just find it interesting how different you guys are and how different you approach handling other people's emotions and yet you still bonded together really naturally and became good friends. Allison's one of the only people I've ever met who just like finishes things and get things done. And I think like we both have ambition and we both like I just was so tired of people who who wouldn't like finish projects or who weren't didn't like put their money where their mouth is in certain ways. And like Allison really does that. So I like respect, you know. There's like, I think like for friendship, sometimes it's lacking respect and I, and, but I like really respect Allison. So I also think that senses of humor really tie people together. And I think that we have the the same, we have a very similar sense of humor. Yeah, totally. I think bridges a lot of gaps. Yeah, for sure. You know, also it changes a lot from your twenties to your thirties. And I'm sure I'm not in my forties, but I'm sure in your (laughs) forties as well. Uh, like you just change, like, you know, that there's that thing of like uh, the, the person in, in college, who you are in college is like not who you are now, or the person that you were at like 19 or 18 or whatever would not react the same way, Mm -hmm. which ties into actually what LeVar said about the story you tell about yourself. You just like would not do the same thing. And you look back and you're like, why the fuck did I act like that? But you know, you didn't have the wisdom you have now. I love what he was saying about not being resistant to what you're meant to do. Absolutely. I mean, he was probably just an actor who auditioned for this part, got this part, and then became like the face of reading. <laughs> I don't think he like woke up at like, you know, 18 and was like, I'll become the face of books. Like, <laughs> but it just happened. Yeah. What did we learn from this episode? Everything. I mean, uh, uh, for me, like reading Rainbow was incredibly incredibly formative um especially like in a home where you're kind of the the uh, figures of yourself yeah and figures of of authority on tv mean a lot to you um and so yeah i mean i was like so into reading rainbow and also like reading was not considered cool um and like i loved it but it was not a thing that people thought was cool Uh, And to have like someone on TV being like, it's cool was like, so great. Mm -hmm. Um, And to have him still be so in love with stories and to still um, like want to tell stories and and believe in the importance of telling stories is uh, like validating to me personally. Definitely. Tamika? What'd you learn, Tamika? Well, honestly, like I'm going to be thinking about a lot of the things that LeVar uh, talked about. But one thing that sort of stuck with me was his idea of holding people on a pedestal mm-hmm. and how like he's very aware that like people in our generation look at him a certain way and it's not the same way that he sees himself. And you can even tell that by the end of the conversation when he very caringly, you know, basically told you guys that he's proud of you. <laughs> I know he probably Lovely. gets that so much because I think people our age like really had him on this like brother father pedestal. And like, I think like have, you know, him being like, I'm proud of you is like my face turned red, which is like so ridiculous. But it really did. You turned bright red. 
Yeah, it it's like so I mean, it's it's like ridiculous, but uh, and there's he's in this episode of Community where Donald Glover's character like literally can't speak because he mm-hmm. meets Lavar Burton and he cannot talk, and like that was you know I've like always loved that like the idea and the saying that like you know courage isn't action you know without fear it's action despite fear and i think that that like really helps frame all of your heroes and that like it's not like this innate ability they have to do these amazing things like they're dealing with all the issues and flaws and difficulties that we're all dealing with and then on top of that they're able to do those things what they represented to you at the time doesn't necessarily mean they have to to be that now. Like, I think mm-hmm. with heroes, it's hard. But like, you know, the someone who meant a lot to you at a specific time in your life, you can just love that and cherish that. And it doesn't have to be like so intensely like if they're not perfect now, it's letting me down. You right. know, like I had to get over Zach Morris being rude to me that one time. And I still love it's him. It's exactly like that. I it's exactly like that. <laughs> what do we rate the episode? Um, I rate it um, 10 out of 10 reading rainbows. Oh, Tamika? I, uh, something close. I rate it 5 out of 5 reading rainbow t-shirts. Oh! <laughs> I know! The audience couldn't see it, but he was wearing a reading rainbow t-shirt. And now I want to go get one. <laughs> I'll rate it 100 out of 100 LeVar mugs. Oh, yeah. Oh, so you guys couldn't see this either. But the mug he was drinking out of just said LeVar on it. Like fully. Like that is a goal. Like I I have paintings of myself in my house, but I need a mug that just says Gabby with no explanation. (laughs) Thank you so much to LeVar Burton for being our guest. Just Between Us is hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. He also composed our killer theme music. Our producer is Tamika Weatherspoon, and our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. Just Between Us is a production of Stitcher. Take a look. It's in a book. A reading rainbow. Beautiful. Stitcher.